Hi, everybody. I just want to welcome you tonight. You know, you heard Sensei Dofan just say we'll get started. And uh, welcome to our third week, uh, which is rounding out our first session of Punch, Kick, Choke, Chat. So I'm so excited about tonight's guest. If you watched the end of last week's, you'll understand why, and I'll get back to that. Um, Sensei Dofan is going to introduce our guest as, as usual. But in any case, my name's Sean Benson. I'm your host tonight. And uh, it's really exciting that you're all tuning in the way you are. And uh, I know personally, I've gotten a lot of DMs and, and messages from you, how much you're enjoying this. Just know that we're enjoying it more. So uh, this is definitely not the end of it. This is the last one we have formally scheduled, but this won't be the end of it. Um, so, you know me, I, I work as an actor. That's half the reason I get to be the, the host of this, so to speak. Uh, but I'm hosting it with uh, Sensei Dauphin and the man I have the pleasure of introducing right now, um, my sword sensei. Also, he's an eighth Dan in... Uh, his own sword craft. He's also a judo master, and he's just one of our shoot the shit chat fellas, Sensei Nicholas Suino. How you doing, Sensei? Man, I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for that introduction. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it grows a little or diminishes each week as we get more comfy. Well, it's pretty embarrassing. The first couple were uh, probably bigger than they needed to be. Well, especially the week you were the guest. I, I think right. it, was, it was the right amount. Well, uh, thank you. Um, I'm happy to take the hand off. Uh, I'm really loving these chats. And a lot of the people I have talked to love them as well because it's an opportunity for us to get to hear a little bit of history, um, to, to see how guys talk when they're kind of in the, in the virtual, um, sitting around the table with a drink mode. Um, and, uh, you know, our guests are the most important part, but a lot of folks have said to me they just love getting to know us better too. So um, I'm just really happy with the way things are going, and I'm really stoked about being able to interview Super Dan tonight. Um, but before I do, I want to mention, uh, Sensei Randy Dauphin, who is, uh, a really good friend of mine and a long time, um, uh, first, uh, first, uh, Iaido student, uh, and then, um, I guess probably the next uh, iteration of our relationship was, um, some, uh, being in the same place at the same time in other kinds of martial arts seminars. And then, uh, I've studied some karate with him. And uh, we're both fitness buffs. And most importantly of all, we are of the same belief, which is that uh, potential is unlimited. And if you want to work hard enough uh, and do enough exploration, you can do amazing things in life. And it's Ooh. really cool to have somebody to bounce that stuff off. So without further ado, Randy, I'm going to hand it off to you and let you rock and roll. Okay, so uh, it's my great pleasure when when this idea kind of started to spring up and then I bounced it off of Sean and uh, uh, Sensei Suino and they were like, yeah, man, this is exciting. Let's do it. Um, Sensei Dan Anderson is one of the very first names that I thought um, people would so much enjoy listening to his story and, and hearing his path uh, in, in martial arts. Um, I know that I met him at actually a Bill Adams seminar in Buffalo, New York. Uh, as we just said a couple of minutes ago, I think it was in like, uh, like 2002 or something like that. Like it, it was wow. a while ago. It yeah, was it, was a minute, yeah. it was a minute ago. Um, but I was just really taken by him. And I remember in that seminar, it was one of those seminars where um, there were four people teaching at the time. And I went to the first group and then uh, Sensei Adams blew the whistle. And I went to the next group, which was Sensei Adams group. And then that was it. I just stayed there. I said, every time they blow the whistle to ask us to move to the next group, I just say to him, uh, Sensei, can I just stay in your group? And he'd say, yeah, sure. I don't care. So I just, 
I ended up staying there for the whole whole day just working out with him. Um, some of the facts that I know about uh, Sensei Anderson is that he started in 1966. Um, he got his Hoi Shodan in 1970. Uh, it, he was the 1977 Karate Illustrated and Black Belt Magazine Top 10 Fighter of the Year. Uh, he was Karate Illustrated's Top 10 Fighter in 1977, 78, 79, and 1980. Uh, he's won over 70 Grand Championships. Um, uh, a person who uh, Sensei Benson and I just saw actually in November at the Canadian Black Belt Hall of Fames. Uh, I know, like this guy I think is a super legend, which is Steve Nassi Anderson. Uh, had very high high uh, opinions of uh, Sensei Anderson, um, and they shared a last name too, which is really cool. <laughs> just, just different color skin. Yeah. That's all. Brother of a different brother. Another thing, even though uh, um, uh, Sensei Anderson is here, uh, and we like, I know him mostly as a karate person, but uh, he's also a very uh, skilled uh, Filipino martial arts practitioner in mar modern Arnis. Um, he's been on the cover of Karate Illustrated two times. He's the world champion, uh, winning the Funakoshi Shoten World Championships. He is the founder of American uh, Freestyle Karate. Uh, he's written a number of different books. I have, I have one of them right here, and I, I'm really proud that uh, he won't remember writing this, but uh, uh, he says, Randy, thanks for being a great partner. Uh, in all of my sessions, you picked it up really, uh, really fast. Yours, Dan Anderson. He gave me his email address so that we could stay in touch. Um, you can read you know, my handwriting? Yikes. I, that's it. <laughs> I, I, years. I must have been writing really slowly. <laughs> I, I remember when I was competing and uh, I would send you emails. This is before Facebook and that. Yep. You'd always, you were always very gracious and would come back and ask me a couple of uh, questions about, oh, like, what were some of my thoughts or what were some of my obstacles or good things. And I just always appreciated you um, being engaged with a person that you didn't really know, but shared a passion with you. Um, so, you know, ha having listed the accomplishments, the things that I really like about uh, Sandy, Sandy Anderson is that uh, I find you to be a very honest person, both in your writing and in your speaking. Uh, you're definitely very charismatic. You're confident, you're funny. Um, and one of the things I really like is that uh, you're not afraid to get out there and compete and say things and do things. You're very brave. And you're a person, in my opinion, who's become very highly skilled through experience, not through talking and not through from doing it. That's how you've gained your experience. And so that's my big, long introduction. And, okay, guys, uh, we're done. Before I even open my mouth, we're done. And so now, I'm going to let Sean lead us into a, a couple of things. And we'll sure, all go ahead, Sean. Okay, great. It's real simple. Everybody watching, if you're new, uh, I'll just tell you this. This is uh, for adults having a conversation, and we're just hanging out while you're watching. And a lot of history, a lot of ideas, a lot of philosophy, a lot of fun's going to get on earth. Uh, there's no, uh, none of us are watching our language. None of us give a shit. Um, this is going to go out on YouTube eventually. And uh, just if that's an issue for you, log off now. Uh, if that's an issue for you, um, you're not from our club, I'm guessing but we respect it, uh, but we're just having a punch, kick, choke, and chat. Um, Sensei Anderson, we're, we're all like rank respecters, so there's no way I'm doing this interview while calling you Dan. Um, would you prefer Professor or Sensei? Well, you know, what, what, I, what I do is, you know, whenever I teach a seminar, 
what I will do is I will tell them, okay, whatever the house rules. So if in the house rules, you call your teacher sensei, okay, good, you call me sensei. If it's sabanim, sabanim. If it's uh, sifu, if it's, you know, mister, you know, some schools are mister. And then uh, what I always do is I always tell them, you know, finally, if you have an overdeveloped sense of propriety, you can call me your worship. I actually have two people call me your worship. So it's like, but that's probably what they needed. To be really honest, I don't care because the thing is, is that uh, uh, one of the things that I keep, I always keep in mind is that despite everything that I did, I started out as a 14 year old kid in a town of 24,000 that did not have a dojo. And the people that, you know, and if, if you ask me about this later and I can tell you more about it, but the people that mentored me that, uh, you know, that I'd come up and I'd ask questions to, they never laid any of that on me. You know, they call, you know, Chuck Norris never told me to call him Mr. Norris. Uh, uh, Sensei Demera never told me to call him Sensei Demera. You know, so none of these ever guys ever told me to call them this, this, that, or the next thing. And so I don't tell anybody to call me anything. And, and you know, informal chat, good, you call me Dan. But if you want, but if it's more proper for you to call me Sensei, I have no problem with that either. You know, it's like, like I would, it's like what I say, it's house rules. And I don't, uh, uh, you know, other, otherwise I'd have a big neon sign that says, come on, bud, can't you read? Right. You know, but then you look at my shirt and you go, uh, <laughs> there's nothing on there. That's right. <laughs> so there you go. Well, I did notice that, that you're not wearing a crest. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're, what you talked about was starting at 14 with working with those people. We're going to get into all that. Yep. But uh, you're, you're coming from a class right now? You're teaching tonight? I just, yeah, I just finished a class at uh, uh, 5.45. In fact, I told them, okay, guys, uh, sorry, got to cut out. I'm out of here. Boom, got to get on to uh, this next meeting. And uh, yeah, so I've been teaching the virtual classes uh -huh. um, and they've been going, comparatively speaking, they've been going better than I thought. Uh, right now, I'm maintaining about 75% uh, occupancy, for lack of a better term. So I don't know what the national standards are in terms of uh, uh, percentage keeping your students and so forth. I have a small club, but uh, it's one of those where had somebody made me a bet on, okay, do you know the personal connection that you've created with these guys? I'd have lost the bet. You know, a lot of these guys are sticking with me and, uh, uh, you know, because I don't get too horribly touchy-feely and I don't go to everybody's birthday parties and, and all that kind of business, but um, I'm really very pleasantly surprised at, you know, all the guys who are sticking with me and the moms of the kids and especially, you know, the ones that are hard hit. It's, uh, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's quite bolstering, you know, so it's quite nice. Right but I, yeah, I, I just came from the class. Yeah, Sensei Suino, I know you've been doing online and how's, how's your experience been too? Uh, yeah, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's taken some getting used to. Uh, <laughs> you're working harder now than you had than you had before aren't you yeah yeah Same um, in many ways yeah. um and um we've we've had about 30 percent of our membership say you know i just can't do it right now um mm -hmm. you know finances and otherwise um and you know if this goes on for much longer i'm sure we'll get more right because it's just uh, it's just tough but like i think i think uh dan you've probably seen this the the um there's always a really core solid group Right. And I don't know what percentage to assign it, but there are people that will train with you rather, you know, whether it's uh, whether it's with fires raining from the sky and dragons are coming out of the sewers, they're going to be there. <laughs> and it's, it's really nice to see them. Continue, right? 
Are those the ones who call you worship? It, it, it reaffirms your faith in, in uh, the interest of the students because, and we can get into this you know, later on, but you know, the clientele has changed over the last 40 years. And so, you know, the, the, the students of today are not the students of, you know, 40, 50 years ago. And go ahead, Sean. Oh, no, Sensei, I was just going to say, this is something that, uh, uh, one of the questions that always comes up and we will get into this, but let's just jump into your life. And that way we okay. can start getting into, because that is something people are going to really want to hear about the perspective of the change over time in North America, the martial arts. So you start karate when you're 14 and, and, and you know, I, I, did a little homework on you. And, and by the way, really quickly, uh, to the people watching, I don't think there's a better equipped martial artist for the COVID era because you've got such a wonderful volume of online instructional videos. Mm -hmm. If you go check out your YouTube, so you must feel pretty used to the idea of being on a camera and trying to impart what's going on within yes. a technique or within a, a how to make something work. Yeah, I, I, st I stole that from Remy Presses, who... Uh, uh -huh was my Filipino martial arts teacher. And it was interesting watching him in front of a camera because he would be nervous and he would start talking and he would start over talking. And then when he got moving, then it started to flow. Then he was in seminar mode and he would teach whatever he taught. And I'd watch him and it's like, okay, well, this is kind of interesting. He's not working, he's not operating off of a script. Fair enough. Well, if you don't know your stuff, you don't need to operate off of a script. Maybe a bullet point outline. Okay, so you've got your ducks in a row and you're talking about what you're talking about. And then uh, you try and eliminate all the ums, ahs, and uh type of stuff. And next thing you know, you know, you have a decent instructional video or you have a decent yeah. communication to people. And and that's that's the that's the trick there. So yeah, well, it was a real pleasure to watch a lot of your stuff this week. And one of my favorite things, and it goes a bit to what Sensei Dolphin says that uh, like one of your videos, you just said, if I don't know something, I won't pretend to know it. And you had someone else come in and do some of your jujitsu stuff, which I thought was really cool. Oh, yeah. So, I, I, yeah, I don't teach what I don't know. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very good at what I do know. And what I don't know, I'm a blithering idiot. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> great. Um, I read online that, you know, you grew up with a dysfunctional family. You were following your brother. Your brother wasn't necessarily going down the right path. Um, talk as much or as little about that as you want. But that did lead you to karate at age 14. So, you know. Great. Sensei Anderson, at any point, if any of us says anything and you think that's fucked, I don't want to obviously just say yeah. I'm, not, I'm not answering. Like, let's move on to something else, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Not a problem. I, you know, it, the thing, I'll tell you, and, and this is why I'll answer pretty much every question. I have no regrets. Every positive step and every misstep has led me to exactly where I am right now, and I am in a good place. I've got a great family. Uh, I've got a great home. My student, you know, I, I, uh, my students. I have a great relationship with my students, and uh, those who are interested in that which I do, I've got a great relationship with them. So, at this point in time, uh, you know, I don't have any back off anything. So, anyway, Sean, you're talking about my older brother. It was. <laughs> It, it went just a hair earlier than that. I was a failed baseball player. Mm. I loved baseball. And I had a stack of baseball cards, if anybody remembers what those are, that would be in my back pocket. And my favorite player was Duke Snyder of the Brooklyn Dodgers. That's how far back I'd go. And, but the thing was, is I would choke at the plate. In practice, I was great in my mind. But I would choke at the plate. I knew that fastball was coming from my ribs. And I would just, uh, just, just shake it, right? 
So when I quit my little league career, uh, I was, I was following my brother, you know, my brother, he was the biggest hood in school and he made out with the girls making out with the girls. That's great. That's cool. And you know, nobody messed with Anderson. So being Anderson's little brother gave me a double O license to have a big mouth yeah. because you didn't mess with Anderson. Well, Anderson got sent to reform school <laughs> and all of a sudden my protection was gone. Got it. And, uh, so when I joined up in a U.S. Air Force Auxiliary called the Civil Air Patrol, and uh, I thought we were going to go flying and this and that. We did so much marching, and I still know how to do a military tuck on a, on a, on a button-down shirt. But a captain there was a fellow by the name of Dave Starkey, and he did karate. And remember, this is 1966. This is all we know about karate at this time is uh, James Coburn, our man Flint, coming up, chopping the guy on the shoulder with the judo chop, and, uh -huh. and they dropped. And it was like, oh, man, this is cool. And then Bruce Lee came out. And now when you look at Bruce Lee's kicks and punches, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get lambasted for this. But, mm -hmm. you know, they weren't all that great. He did the great yells, but he was the most legit guy at the time. And so there's this whole mystique, this cool thing, and – then Dave Starkey, he does karate. Boom. I go to the Marshall Recreation Center and, uh, you know, the rest is either legend or tall tales, as I tell it, depending on which way you believe. So there you go. Well, so one thing we're, we're all interested in, the three of us, but also everybody watching is, is those first classes. When you walk in, you don't know anything about it. You're, okay. you're, you're not even a white belt yet, basically. How, how is that? My, yeah, my, I, I'm always interested to know, like, when you go in the dojo, in addition to your sensei, who are the other people in the class that you're like, holy shit, like, look at that girl or look at that guy. Like, you know, like, who are those people? Yeah, like? yeah, yeah. In, in, ret in retrospect, it was really interesting because, see, the thing was is that Dave told me when the class was. Fine. I go in. That's his class. I just missed the beginning class. I was an hour late for my first class. So Lauren Christensen, who is very well known in the real deal world, he was the teacher. He was a green belt. So he pulls off to the side. Uh, this is a little Italian guy, Tony Leonetti, and says, teach him a few things. Tony Leonetti was actually my first teacher. So we go off to the side. Now, these other guys, they, they, they were at the coveted rank of blue belt, which was the first solid color belt up, you see. And I'm watching these guys spar and say, how can they do this and not kill each other? Now, they were terrible. They were out of range. You know what I mean? The fighting wasn't fighting. But man, it was like, wow. So I go over there, Tony Leonetti, he shows me the straight punch. Oh, this is cool. The high block. And then uh, the forward stance, long forward stance. Rip! There went the pants because it was 1966. You pegged those pants. You wore them tight. Ripped right straight up the front. <laughs> and I was in love. I I just, I just, I just went for it. And it was, uh, uh, I still remember that first class so electric, but the cool thing was Lauren could have, he could have said, you're an hour late, come back next either Tuesday or Thursday, whatever. But instead he put me with this guy. So I got my first lesson and, uh, I never forgot that. That was just incredible. But, oh, I just fell in love. It was just like, you know, I go home, my pants are ripped up the butt. And I'm telling mom, oh, mom, 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 I really want to do this. I want to do this. 
And what I didn't know at the time was it wasn't in the budget. She thought it was a six month thing. Mm. 54 years later, I started ah. <laughs> Jamie Bond. So there you go. You know, so Sam, yeah. I got to tell you, that's what happened. Uh, I had a similar start. Uh, my mom didn't want to let me do karate. And uh, I did karate for four months with Sensei Legacy at the University of Western Ontario. And when I got home at Christmas time, I asked my mom for the money. And she said, like, no way. And I was like, oh, crap, what am I going to do now? And when I was leaving, my grandmother gave me 100 bucks and said, here's 100 bucks. Don't, don't tell your mom, go do that karate thing that you want to do. And that's how, and then, then it was a green belt before my mom knew that I was in karate. <laughs> it was almost that's awesome. Later. Oh, it was way too late for her to stop me. That's great. Uh, since I had almost the same story, I'm going to make it real quick. My parents said, while well, your university will help you with any of your extracurricular arts. So I came home and I said, I need a hundred bucks for karate. And they said, that's not the kind of art we were thinking about. So I had to pay my <laughs> own way is. too. Yeah. You know, I think that's half the reason I'm still doing it. Um, so do you know what style you're doing? At the, like, did you at the time have any idea of style or was it just karate? Well, when I joined up, it was just karate. But here's the interesting thing is that uh, the style that we were training in was called Kung Su. Okay. Now, the fascinating thing about Kung Su is that it didn't hit me until uh, I bought uh, the book Karate Do Kyohan by uh, Gichin Funakoshi and it was the uh, uh, oh shoot I can't think of his name the translation that was uh, Oshima it was the Oshima translation and I'm looking at the kata and they're the same the Heian kata are the same as the Pyongan kata that I was doing and then when I was researching it later on it was Korean Shotokan karate it was Korean ice Shotokan karate Kong Su is the Korean pronunciation of karate. Mm. Yeah. So I was doing Korean Shotokan. Go figure. But yeah, the kata we started out with, and then uh, it was 1969 when the chief instructor changed the, uh, uh, changed the system. So. And what did you change it to? Well, dig it. This is 1969, and I'll backtrack a little bit. Uh, back in, before I started training, I think in 64, there was a tournament that uh, the local JKA, Japan Karate Association rep, put on. And, uh, and our guys went to it. And from what I was told, they got their asses handed to them on a platter. I mean, they were spanked like they were spanked like their daddies. And so that kind of bugged the, our chief instructor, you know, so... Shortly after, or not, not too long after that, uh, one of his students, Tom Levack, was up in Seattle and said, well, there's this Kung Fu club, and they're doing this really interesting thing. And so Bruce, who is the chief instructor, he went up there. Well, it was Taki Kimura's club, Bruce Lee's guy, right? And they were doing the modified Wing Chun. So he, uh, Bruce and his girlfriend went up there for, I think, something like nine months to a year, learned the basics of this modified Wing Chun and brought it back and they started letting it seep into what we were teaching. So the next thing, instead of, I'll back up a little bit, instead of, you know, this here, he was showing us stuff that started here and we were doing simultaneous block and hit and so forth. And we were doing shin kicks and all this kind of business. And this ended up being uh, what he ended up calling Wu Ying Mun, which means uh, formless gate and Keeping it in perspective now, 1969, it was really gauche 
for any, any non-Orientals to create a style because everybody's talking about traditional karate tra or, you know, sure. traditional Taekwondo, which, you know, Taekwondo was born in 1955. That's not traditional Taekwondo. Give me a break, but we'll go there later. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> so we were doing the new style and then we were doing Wing Mun. But the thing was, is it was an American system created by an American man. Uh, and to be really honest, it, you know, we tossed out all the katas for, and for me at that time is like, yes, because I like mm. to free fight. And, uh, you know, the importance of katas came, you know, 40 years later, which is another story in itself, depending, I don't know how long we've got to talk, but anyway, uh, that's what we were doing. And so by the time I got my black belt, it was free sparring type of black belt and it was geared towards tournaments. Now, the reason why it was geared towards tournaments, it was that that was the, uh, the only type of competition where you could, let's say, engage with somebody else. And, you know, and you didn't have to drink a pitcher of beer and be out like till 1 a.m. And the teacher, he had shoulder and knee problems, so he never trained. So we were the sounding board. And so our black belt class, you know, we became uh, a terror in the local tournaments. And the funny thing was, I was the best winner, although I was not the best fighter. We had some, we had some fighters in the school who would routinely just beat the dog crap out of me. But if you got me in the ring, I don't know why, but that's where, that's where I shined. That's where, I mean, they couldn't touch me in the ring. No, were they happy, happy to get me back in the black belt class. You know? <laughs> so, the thing that you couldn't do at the plate in baseball, you could do at the line when the ref said go. You I have no clue why, but yes. Yeah. It was one of those things where, uh, and even my, even my first tournament, uh, I was in the juniors division. Now the juniors division was 15 and under. They did not do points. It was continuous. Hey, continuous matches, mm -hmm. 40 years before continuous matches. Okay. Fair enough. And, oh, you'll love this. If you haven't read my uh, memoirs, which uh, uh, was my most favorite book to write, it's also the ones I think has sold the least, but here I am, I'm a junior and we're doing this uh, constant and, 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 you know, the fighting is horrible, et cetera, but it's the only tournament my mother went to. So my mom's up in the stands and I'm like that. And I catch one in, in the breastplate. And I go down out of the corner. Whoops. Just whack the computer out of the corner of my eye. What do I see? Mom's coming down the stands and I'm going in, inside my, in my, in my head. No, mom. No. So, anyway, so I, before she gets down to the floor, I am up. I still can't breathe, but I'm not making the noise. I'm not, you know, just, and she stopped and we kept on and I lost, I lost the fight. Uh, well, I didn't lose the fight because I got whapped. I just lost, you know, the guy, beat yeah. me. but my mother never came to another tournament. I got a funny story about the only tournament my dad came to, but my mother never, never came to another tournament. But boy, on that tournament, I was hooked. I mean, I was hooked just as bad as my first karate lesson. I mean, and it was, it was just like, this is the thing for me. And uh, why karate? Why karate tournaments? 
Well, this is one of the things we had with Sensei Suino. He was our first guest and we asked him to join us for the interviews, but he found the same thing within himself. Isn't that right, Sensei, that there's something calm and relaxing that other people didn't have when they competed? Yeah, you know, two parts of your story so far, Dan, have just really resonated with me. One is the first day I walked into a judo dojo, I, I, I was in love then and I've, I've never looked back, right? <laughs> 51 uh, years yeah. later. You um, go off the high board and you're still falling. Yeah. Yes. And, and, a and B, I, I found that same thing you did that in, in uh, judo tournaments, I could beat the guys that could beat me in my own dojo. Uh, and I, I can't explain why I was not nervous during judo tournaments. And they were yeah. right. I, it, well, I was, I, I was, I was nervous, but I tell you, there was something and it's, it's, I've got a viewpoint now and, but it didn't, didn't hit me for years and years and years and years. I firmly, firmly believe that everybody has an area in which uh, they're unspeakably awesome at. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people never find that area. Mm -hmm. But there's an area waiting for them. I've got a mechanic who, uh, I mean, he lifts up the hood, and I, I swear, he smells what's under. You know, the, oh, Dan boy, you need, you need the spark plugs changed. How long do you need it? Oh, man, look at that rotor cap. You know, all, all this jargon that I don't know. But bam, bam. It, and it's, it's, it's like a chef. It's like a painter. Uh, it's like a singer. You know, there's a certain area where, pow, you know, I, 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 uh, I liken it to like Miles Davis, okay? Uh, I don't know how many jazz fans out there, but, you know, Miles Davis, there you go, Sean. Miles Davis changes the face of jazz five times mm -hmm. within his lifetime incredible artist, horrible human being, terrible human <laughs> yeah. being. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but he had this area. Okay. Well, karate was my area. Go figure. If I was a good, if I was a good, uh, uh baseball player, you'd be talking to somebody else right now, you know, but, uh, and then when it transferred into tournaments, go figure. So, you know, I, I know this is a karate thing and they were generally doing, but that's literally what Oprah says. She says, your life's purpose is to find your life's purpose. And I love <laughs> that because once you figure that out, things just start to roll. Exactly. Um, oh, well, hi, Hanchi. Hanchi, oh, uh, Legacy is on, is on the call. I don't know if you can see him. He wanted to say hi to you. He's, uh, hey, you know, you guys... Met back at that seminar as well as one of Bill Adams' best friends, and yes, and, but he didn't go by Wendy at the time. No, he didn't go by <laughs> Wendy then. <laughs> is, there, is there something about you that, that you're not telling us? <laughs> no. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Hey, I'm staying healthy, staying in business. Uh, this virus hasn't bit me yet, so. Uh, Boom. Moving along. Super. Great. Yep. I'm going to enjoy you. listening to your stories. Thank you. All right. Okay, next question, Sean. Well, yeah, so on that note, oh, first, next first question. off. I have, yeah. I have a question. I want to get yes, sir. in. So, uh, Sensei, I, Sensei Anderson, I know you've, uh, like, you fought the who's who of, of names um, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, a couple of things. Just mention some of those names. Uh, who those people are, like what, how you mm -hmm. felt about them, what they were good at, um, you know, what you found to be challenging. And then the question that everybody is going to want to know is 
why did you compete with a Superman t-shirt on all those years? And how did you get that nickname? <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll answer your first question first. The second question, I will just leave you with a teaser. It was a trick that was played on me that backfired. So, <laughs> okay. The guy, so the guys that, uh, uh, oh God, you know, it's, I tell you, it's really funny because there were so many doggone good fighters out there. And, you know, if we look at, uh, at home in the early 70s, you know, we, we had this one Filipino kid who nobody outside the Northwest knows, kid by the name of Ferdy, as in Ford, Ferdinand Orbino. Quick, 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 tremendous counterpuncher. Uh, then we had uh, a guy like, you know, Mark Kalisiak, okay? More well-rounded guy come out of Canada, uh, Mike Shintaku, uh, sweeper par excellence, counterpuncher par excellence, uh, Fred King. Uh, Fred and I actually trained together as uh, uh, sparring buddies. He taught me more about my street aspect, and I helped him with uh, tournament stuff. Sneaky as the day is long. Uh, Chip Wright, one of uh, uh, Chuck Norris's boys down in Medford, Oregon. You know how this guy could do. This stuff with his body, I have no clue. But every cool thing you ever saw in Walker, Texas Ranger, that wasn't Chuck. That was Chip. And uh, yeah, and all these guys, see, the odd, the odd thing, got to keep whacking this computer. The odd thing is that I don't know why I got to understanding the game uh, sooner than others. Because mm -hmm. when I was growing up, um, a lot of guys who were playing point karate, and, now, and when I talk about when I was growing up, I'm talking about, let's say, 69 to 74. A lot of guys who were playing point karate were still out there free fighting. Well, the thing is, is that, you know, uh, you can equate it to, let's say, Randori in a judo dojo. Randori is Randori, but competition is something else. And so uh, I figured out the game fairly quickly. And... You would get certain people who would say, okay, you know, point karate is a game of tag. But they would say it derisively. You know, like, okay, it isn't the real thing because you're just tagging the guy. Well, you know, back in the 60s, a tag left a mark. And if, if somebody, if somebody uh, decided to get uh, uh, wise with you, there was payback. And there was payback either in the ring and more often than not, you would take the warning. You know, you hear the guy on the ground after you gut punched him making the noise. <gasps> Yet, you know, okay, excessive contact. You know, you got it, boss. I got it. Yes, sir. Yes, sensei. And then you drill the sucker again, lose the point. And then you go start playing tag, tag, tag to get the point. So the thing was is that back in the day, I sound like an old man. I can get my cane Sonny, back in the day, our prank meant something, damn it. You know, but, but to learn how to play the game, uh, for me, number one, one had to be a sniper, but also where I excelled was I was a defensive player. Uh, I remember uh, Renardo Barden was watching me warm up. Now, Renardo, uh, he was the editor of uh, uh, Karate Illustrated magazine back around 78, 79, 80, 81, 82. And he was watching me warm up down at the International Karate Championships. And uh, I was warming up with a kid named Nathan Cruz, who was from the Black Karate Federation. And Nathan cracked me one. 
And uh, I was like, screw this. So after sweeping him out and bouncing him on the concrete, I played defensive, and Renardo comes up to, to, up to me afterwards and says, geez, when you don't want to get hit, you don't get hit. Bingo. And that was where I had an up on a lot of other guys. A lot of guys were like really primo offensive players, but they couldn't handle a primo defensive player. And this is where uh, uh, I think I excelled. Now, this is a very long answer to your question, but there were some guys like, uh, you know, the late Howard Jackson. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. You talk about people who could take off quickly, who could take off with a fast blitz. Most of the people right now have seen Steve Nasty Anderson fight. However, I fought Nasty, and I fought Howard Jackson, and no disrespect to Nasty, and especially since, you know, he just passed away. But from an experiential level, Nasty was waist deep in mud compared to Howard. And Nasty had these long, long, long arms, and Howard was 5'5". Five, five. Okay, so we talk about a comparative blitz here. And uh, so it was, you know, fighting guys like Howard, uh, working with guys like Bill Wallace. I never had the chance to, I, I came that close to fighting him in a competition. And I'll tell you right now, at that point in time, he would have spanked me like he was his daddy, like he was my daddy, you know, and that's, that's the honest truth. But you get on to later on where uh, guys like Keith Vitale, who uh, the only difference between Keith Vitale and myself is honest to Pete, he wanted it more. And so he went that little extra edge. One point every single damn match with Keith. And we were, and we were close, but doggone it, he wanted it more. So he earned it. Uh, guys like Ray McCallum, here, another guy who really wanted more, Jamie Tabaras from, uh, uh, from Texas from Houston. Boy, you talk about somebody who had tremendous guts and was willing to fly in the face of a tornado. I, fought, I saw him fight uh, uh, this one guy, uh, Robert Harris out of uh, Dalton, Georgia. And Robert, oh man, he was tough and he was long and he was lanky. And, and Gatto tore into him like Robert owed him money. I mean, it was like, so a lot of these guys, a lot of these guys were tough but I think what helped me elevate was I was a defensive fighter. And from that, I developed how to read what people will do before they do it. And if you want to know about that, buy one of a number of books because I lay it out as a gift. And if, if people take it and run with it, people take it and run with it. If they don't, they don't. But that's what, you know, that's what kept me going through. So, uh, yeah. That's it. Can I you a question about that because uh, it's something that Sensei Legacy and I have talked about a lot. It's uh, a lesson that he's he's really pushed on to me is um, offense is great, but your defense is the thing that allows you to really impose your will on another person when you're fighting with them because it gives you that confidence to be able to move to the inside and do things and trust in your ability to escape or block or evade. Um, when I say that to you, what is your thinking on that? <coughs> 100%. Because the thing is, what makes a good offense is a crap defense. <laughs> my, my opinion. You know, somebody can develop, uh, if we look at it karate-wise, ding, 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 ding. But, uh, you know, if they can take that away from the person, I mean, 
A perfect example would be Mike Tyson and Buster Douglas. You know, Mike Tyson spanked everybody. And yet he forgot what made him great, which was the hard training, which was the combinations, which was the bobbing and weaving. But you get somebody like Buster Douglas. Now, Buster Douglas, at that point in time, had no reason to be in the same ring with Mike fighting for the championship. But he had good enough defense. He could keep Tyson off of him to the degree to where you know, he could score the knockout. And yeah, he went down in the 10th, but you put that defense, you put that will together, and Tyson didn't have a defense. Tyson's defense was his offense. And when somebody Ooh. smothered that offense and was able to put their will upon them, bingo, they won. And, uh, you know, so I firmly believe that. But the other thing was, I didn't like getting hit. One of the questions uh, that I will tell people in, uh, uh, in seminars, what makes me qualified to teach a seminar on free fighting? And they go, well, sir, you're, you're high rated black belt. And I go, nope. Uh, sir, you won X amount of championships. Nope. Uh, sir, you have uh, trained for X amount of years. Nope. And once they're done with all the wrong answers, I'll tell them, what makes me qualified to teach a free fighting se seminar is I was scared to death of getting hit. And I had to handle that. But on my way to handling that was creating a situation where I got hit the least. So I started working on defense. I started working on how to read what people will do. And Randy, you're at the seminar that I did where, uh, and I'll tell the rest of you guys, I do this, uh, uh, it's one of my quote unquote parlor tricks, which isn't really a parlor trick, but I will tell, you know, I'll tell the whole group, okay, I want somebody to do some sparring with me. Who wants to spar? And somebody will raise their hand, come out and I go, okay, good. So we're not going to go fast and hard. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to beat each other. We're not going to kill each other, but we were going to spar. Okay. Okay. We bow, we assume a position. I go, hold on for a second. And I go off to somebody and I start telling that person, exactly what they're set up to do and i'll tell them this 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 and this and then i'll come back out and i'll wisecrack and say, i had to tell them a joke okay let's go and oh what i also told them is this is exactly what i'm gonna do to counter it and i'll do that now once in a blue moon if somebody started like this they'll know they'll know the jig is up and they'll change to something else i'll come out they'll change to something else and i go oh wait a minute i forgot to tell them the punchline Straight uh. <laughs> right back to the person. So, okay, now he shifted to this, which means he's now set up to do this, 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 and that. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to shift. I'm going to go this, 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 and that. And then at the end of, you know, about a minute or so sparring, I'll stop and I'll ask the person uh, off to the side who I told the prediction to, I'll tell him, okay, from one to 100, how accurate was I? Who wants to guess my, uh, uh, who wants to guess my accuracy ratio? Somebody talk to me. I'm going to go uh, 95. Close, but no cigar. I'm going to say 99. <laughs> nah, not quite that good. I wish, but pretty close. Uh, it's, a, it's about 97.5%. My lowest was 78%, and that was, a, that was with a white belt. And, you know, white belts, they spar like they're, they're, they're geese on fire. And you never know what the hell they're <laughs> <You know? laughs> But this is, this is what I developed because I was deathly afraid of getting hit. 
And then after a while, taking one or two shots or three shots, it's kind of like, okay, I don't like this, but I'm no longer scared shitless of this. So, uh, you know, there's that. Now, that question, I was going to answer this other question because it's a great tale. Okay, wearing T-shirts and wearing the Superman symbol. So uh, back in 19, dum da dum 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 73, the karate association that I was still with, uh, when we put on, you know, we, we put on the second largest tournament in the Pacific Northwest, and it was called the Western States Karate Championships. And the gal that would write up the tournament review, yeah, she and I uh, were kind of at odds with each other. So she writes this thing, you know, and young Dan Anderson, that's how they always said, because I was like 18 or something. Like that. Young Dan Anderson, who is rapidly becoming known in the area as Super Dan. See, they knew I like comic books, right? Well, when this comes out, I read this Super Dan, I said, what the hell? And her attitude was, <laughs> live with it. And so anyway, I'm, I'm pissed. It's like, thanks. Until a tournament, a guy comes up to me and calls me Super Dan, but there's a tone of respect in his voice. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, I've got a handle. Like, like in, in ham radio, I've got a handle. People start calling me Super Dan. And here's the screwy thing. If anybody wants to go through tons and tons of black belt magazines and Karate Illustrated, I was the first person on the uh, uh, on any kind of circuit anywhere that had a nickname. I was there before Superfoot Wallace, there before uh, Jeff Smith, the DC Bomber, there before the California Kid, Steve Fisher, the California Flash, uh, Howard Jackson, there was Super Dan. And so from that point, I started wearing it uh, uh, quite proudly. And then once I really got into my cocky phase, I started being able to do things and getting away with it, which was, let's put that blue shirt on. Let's, let, let's, let's iron on that decal. And boy, the, the, the traditionalists in the Pacific Northwest did not like that one bit. And I didn't care because I was kicking ass and taking names. And if they didn't like it, you know, then, then they better go drink another light beer. And you know, my attitude isn't like that now. <laughs> I thought I was the white Muhammad Ali and I was pissing people off left, right, and center, except for those that, who wished to rebel. But that's where it started. And then uh, uh, I was the first guy in the national uh, circuit to wear a shirt. And this next one, I will admit, I really, really wish I didn't do it at this point, but I did. But you know all those people that stick their hand up in the air and call their own points? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> in competition, I would, I would go in, I would hit, I'd raise my hand, and I'd yell, got him. Uh <laughs> if they didn't call the point, I would hit the person, and I would yell, got him again. Got him again! That one almost always got me the point. But at that point, I was at least hitting the person instead of, you know, ducking and running my hand or even going partway and then raising my hand, hoping the judges would be swayed. You know, I, uh, yeah, I, st I started that one too. So if I could take it back, I would. But 
So if, if you were going to – if that name was picked for you, if you were going to pick a superhero back then when you were that age, who was the superhero <laughs> you would have picked? It would have been, it, it been Superman. These days it would be Green Lantern, but the big – the tricky question is which Green Lantern? Because when you want to read the comic books, there's been a number of Green Lanterns. Hal Jordan. So that has to be qualified with Hal Jordan. And definitely not Ryan Reynolds in the movie. <laughs> I like Ryan Reynolds, but please, the Green Lantern movie sucked. So anyway. So I got a question for you, though. You mentioned working with Bill Wallace. You know, what is your in-between tournament time looking like? And what do your training sessions look like? Because you're basically focused on winning fights in, in the ring or, or in, the, um, in the tournaments. And, you know, you're not spending a lot of time doing kata. You're just going, how do I get this? Do you have any um, physical fitness regimes in and around the sparring? What are these uh, guys whose names we still know having you do? And are you fighting with them as part of your training? No. No, no, and no. I sparred. I sparred. I would stretch. I would do uh, slow motion kicks. But in terms of, uh, and see, this is, this is one of the reasons why my uh, instructor that, uh, uh, that I made my black belt with and I split up, he wanted, he wanted me to do all sorts of crazy crap. You know, he wants me to run? Why do you want me to run? <laughs> Build up your win. He wants, me, he wants me to lift weights, you know? Man, that's a hard workout. I'm not interested in lifting. I want to spar. And the thing was is that I built up my win through sparring, but the other thing was, which I didn't know it at the time, but I knew when to explode and when to relax. I could go through six or seven or eight sparring partners. They would end up being beat red, sweating like crazy, and I'd still be ready to go. And I had the metabolism that I could pull that off. But the other thing was, I didn't waste a lot of effort. You know, uh, my viewpoint at the time was that, you know, I read and studied boxing. I studied boxers. I did not box, but one of the things that they that successful boxers do is they they put time in the ring. And even uh, uh, if you were, let's say, like Muhammad Ali when he was young, Cassius Clay. Here's something that a lot of people don't uh, don't uh, don't know. But this whole rope a dope thing against George Foreman, he was training that against the first, for the first fight with Sonny Liston just in case Liston got him up against the ropes. He would lean back against the ropes, work on covering up uh, his, uh, uh, against, you know, body punches, head punches, just in case he got caught. As it turned out, he didn't get caught, but he developed that skill back then. Well, but that was, that was in the ring. That was tactics, strategies while you were sparring in the ring. So that's what I would do. And then uh, the only thing, if any kind of regimen, uh, I hated stretching, but I wasn't naturally uh, loose like Keith Vitale. You know, Keith Vitale, he's not limber at all, but oh, the boy is loose. Man, he can flick that leg everywhere. Uh, went through one stretching session with Bill Wallace, and uh, it's like, I'm not ever going to let him stretch me again. He's going to rip every muscle out of my ass that way. Like, it's, there's a reason why Bill's got four hip replacements. And uh, yeah, love him to pieces. You want to talk to somebody who's down to earth? Talk to either, uh, there's two champions who are like really utterly down to earth. Bill Wallace, <coughs> totally down to earth champions. Say the but, second again, uh, the, I missed it in my ear. Yeah, Jeff Smith cool. and Bill Wallace. Mm -hmm. two, two champions, just incredibly down to earth. Yeah, I mean, you can talk to them about anything. 
But, uh, but my training regimen was sparring. And then the other thing was that uh, I trained to work both sides, left side, right side. Mm. You know, back in the, uh, uh, you know, back in the ancient days, you know, you went with your good shot. And then when Bruce Lee came out, everybody, everybody's jumping up and down about Bruce Lee because, you know, Bruce Lee you know, says, yeah, lead with your power side, lead with your power side. Well, what Bruce Lee didn't do is Bruce Lee didn't break his hand on a Letterman stupid pet trick called a board break, trying to break some wet wood and then bust up his good hand, his second degree black belt hand, and find out that he had a blue belt left hand. That was a nice water dip. So I started working my left side while my right hand's in a cast. Mm. And uh, <laughs> to tell you what a nut I was, I ended up soaking, you know, oh, this whole thing about soaking a cast off, yeah, cast don't soak off. You have to rip and tear and cut and et cetera. Uh, 1972 internationals, uh, uh, I actually worked the cast being off, made my first protective glove, which was a, uh, uh, an ace bandage wrap inside the hand so my hand wouldn't squeeze because I'd broken the metacarpal back here. And then a uh, pad on the back of my arm, ace wrapped that. And of course, if you're doing headshots, you know, you didn't have to touch anyway. So, hey, there you go. Ended up uh, taking second place in the lightweight division. My first major win with a busted hand. Uh, if my left hand was any good, I may have won first place, but uh, I was gonna I was gonna find a counter punch with my left hand. Saw the guy coming in, got ready to fire, and he sunk it to the elbow. <laughs> he speared me, but good. It's kind of like okay, time to start working on that left hand. So, training regimen: left hand, left leg. So. Uh, no matter what you smothered, I had an answer. And then the other thing that I would do, and this is, uh, it's funny because it's coming from a, a, a defensive fighter. And Nick, tell me if you found this to be true in your judo career is that Americans are impatient. All you got to do is wait for 30 seconds. And they'll tell you their favorite move because they'll try it on you. So I would move, I'd dance around the ring, and the next thing they'd do is they'd, they'd come in with that power psych. It's like, okay, well, we'll smother the psych here. <laughs> All you gotta do is wait. They'll tell you. They'll, they'll tell you everything that they're, they're good at. You just have some patience. And you know, because my, my concept in tournament fighting was I was gonna hit you first. Now I never said it when I was gonna hit you. I might wait till the end of the match and then pow, hit you, and I'd win and they'd, you know, I'd get booze because I wasn't fighting and so forth. Said, Hell, it wasn't a fight. It was a match. Let's <laughs> interesting. Um, when I was competing since Legacy, would always tell me to watch all the fighters be in my division. Just sit there and watch them. Don't pay attention because everybody let off with their best techniques. They weren't going to start with their fourth best technique when they left the line. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the, now the trick is, is that most people didn't develop two or three or four or five uh, good techniques. In fact, you know, Nick, you probably ran into somebody who was like great at Sayanage. And then the moment, the moment that you, the, you uh, stopped at Sayanage, it's like, hey, what the fuck am I going to do? I don't know. Okay. I know what I'll do. I'll try Sayanage again because it didn't work the first time. Maybe it'll work the second time. Yeah. But no, that was the other thing was being all around. <laughs> you know, if you cut off my side kick, I'd hit you with a round kick. If you cut off my round kick, I'd hit you with a back knuckle. You take off that back knuckle, bam, here came the left hand. And if worse came to worst, I'd play defensive until you made a mistake and I'd hit you then. You know, it, 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 was all, it was all an interesting type of chess game for me. And trust me, I suck at chess, but you get me in the tournament ring, I'm brilliant at chess. So there you go.
So let's go to one of our questions here that, that relates a little bit to something you've mentioned a number of times. This is from Justin Shea, uh, one of our black belts in, in Sensei Defense Club. Are there any practical ways to build up your defensive game without a partner? Without a partner? Uh, yeah. Uh, number one, get a body-sized mirror. So what you, can, you, what you can do is you can see yourself in the mirror. And then when you start looking, uh, pick any technique. Now, if you take a look at techniques, techniques have got three phases. They have point of origin, they have delivery route, and then they have point of destination. Okay, so they have point of destination is just the target. The route is the travel route. Let's say for a round kick, okay, round kick's going to curve at you. You know, a straight punch is going to go straight at you. But, and then, you know, travel point, uh, uh, point of origin, okay, where it starts. Now, here's the interesting thing is that what does it do in the first four inches of motion? And then you relate that to the travel route, such as, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, pretend back fist, right? Here's what I do, and here's what you can do in the mirror, okay? I divide the body up in half. So if I'm facing, okay, there goes Randy. Randy's leaving. He's, he's going to the mirror. Okay, whatever. <laughs> I might as well dog him. He's, he's walking out of here. He's got four by me already. But I'll continue to answer your question. I divide the body in half. Okay, and I lead it by the shoulder. So what we have is we have a center line, okay? And it doesn't matter. You know, a guy can be sideways facing. A lot of the fighters, they fight sideways. Okay, it's still center from the front to the back of the body. Now, back fist. If, I, if the person throws the back fist and the way the back fist is structured, what does the back fist do in preparation? Well, now you notice it crossed the center line. So I'm watching, okay, if that hand crosses the center line, bang, there it is. Oh. Well, what's it going to be? Well, it's not going to be a ridge hand. It's not going to be a hook. You know, the hook, it goes away from the center line before it comes in. The straight punch, it just sort of goes. It doesn't really go away. It doesn't crisscross. Now, doing this in the mirror is when you watch yourself in the mirror, don't watch yourself. Watch that guy. Watch that guy in the mirror. It's almost like uh, watch your twin in the mirror. You know, it, what was his name? First name? Justin. Justin, yeah. Okay, Justin, watch your, watch your twin brother, Jason. He's in the mirror. Watch what hit, his foot does in, compare, in, in conjunction with the center line. Does it go away? Does it come straight at you like a sidekick? Does it go the other way and come back like a hook kick? And you start recognizing these tells. But the big trick is in using the mirror is, you know, you got to look at your twin brother, Jason, the guy who's behind the glass in the mirror to kind of separate him out from you. Okay, good. So what is the tell? And then you start looking at somebody else. You go, oh, wow. Okay. Uh, you, you get a dojo partner who likes to throw the back fist. Okay. Good. Well, what is he doing? Is he crossing that line? Well, damn. Well, look at that. Just like that old bald guy on, on, on the video chat. <laughs> look at look at this. There's the back fist. Huh? The guy's right after all. I'll buy his complete library. You ought to. But anyway, don't you be laughing, Sean. I'm be, I'll be dogging you for like buying I love promos. I'll buy your library. I love yeah, this shit. I promo I it up. But, but it, anyway, you do this with any technique. And, and the trick is, is just pick one. Don't try to read everything under the sun, moon, and stars. Just pick one. And then when you get back into the dojo, Find the person that throws that and see, okay, good. 
Does that hand cross the center line? Does that hand get on the center line? Does that hand aim? Now, I'm not talking about their stance. I'm not talking about, uh, let's see if I can back off here. Because, you know, a lot of the guys, you know, they're like this, their hands like, I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about the first four inches of motion. What happens in the first four inches of motion? And then, and then if you get, I'm running over some cords here, pardon me. There we go. And then if you have a training partner, okay, somebody who trusts you implicitly, somebody who will work with you to get you better, good. Then you have him start firing that back fist. And it's like, okay, just shoot that back fist. Shoot it again. I'm just watching. I'm not even blocking. I'm just watching. And you develop your observation. That's the whole thing. It's observing the other guy. And, you know, I'm, I'm really, really sure Nick has got, I mean, I'm sure that in his judo background, we are just exactly like this. You've got to involve the other guy in the fight. You're not out there doing your own thing, your own thinky think, et cetera, because the other guy's, you know, he's punching, he's kicking, he's grappling, he's grabbing, et cetera. You've got to involve them in the match. Well, once you start involving them, okay, now you're observing. Now you're not doing this little tornado brain. Oh my God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Is he, oh geez, is he open for the back? Because I don't know he's open for the back. Because I don't, yeah, he's open for the back. Because I don't know, you know, oh geez, how did it just get hit? Well, you're thinking too much about yourself. You observe the other guy. But long-winded answer. Sorry, you asked for it. You asked for the long, you know, I give nothing but long-winded answers. Sorry, but We're loving but, it here. But, but the thing is, is that look, you know, you use the mirror as your partner, you divorce yourself, so you're not doing the round kick. Here's your brother, uh, twin brother Jason. Okay, he's doing the round kick. And watch what he does in the first four inches. Does he go away from the center line? Does he go straight in on the center line? Does he cross the center line? You'll start picking up patterns as how people move. And I'll tell you, you know, you do this for three solid months. I mean, it's not rocket science. It really isn't. But it is observation. And it's getting out of the way, any preconceived motions of whatever, it's how the body moves. The body only moves so, so <laughs> it's, it's not rocket science. Anyway, Sean, well, back. We, we, we appreciate the long answers. Um, I got a question here from Sensei Mike Russell. He's one of our, our black belts as well. Tell him the answer. No, who's next? He's uh, Mike. No, sorry. <laughs> You're out. We'll see you next week. Uh, no. So he says he'd love to come to Portland when the border opens. He's in Vancouver. Um, his question is, hi, Sensei, in your martial arts career, what lesson was the hardest to learn? <laughs> the hardest lesson to learn was that losing had nothing to do with me as an individual. I rode a roller coaster ride during my competitive career when I won, I was on the top of the world. When I lost, I was in the, in the dumps. And my guys at the school, they never wanted to be around me when I lost because they basically paid for it. I used them as punching bags. And that had come back out of it. And uh, uh, mellow out, maintain, et cetera. But the hardest lesson for me to learn was that losing was not a reflection of me as an individual, mm. as my self-worth. And that, and that one was tough because karate and competition is what I built, built my self-worth up on to begin with. And so I, I invested myself in it like crazy. And uh, 
but you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, at the end of the day, me being a martial arts champion and a 10th Dan and all that kind of business means nothing to Justice Myers. Justice Myers, he's one of my six-year-olds and he's uh, what I call a senior tan belt. No, he just made his brown belt. He doesn't know any of this stuff. It's the professor working with him. You know, me being this highfalutin guy who's won all these tournaments means nothing to Casey, his mom. What means to his mom is that I'm working with his kid, you know? And, and so that was, boy, oh boy, was that ever the hardest lesson to learn? And I learned it, thank goodness. There's people that never did learn it. Right and people on. bailed out of competition and so forth. Yes, sir. Well, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about your transition as you were competing, you're competing, you're winning, you're losing. This is your 70s, right? I mean, you're, you're with all the guys in North America doing this. What makes you, by 1985, open your club and effectively invent a style of karate? Okay, well, I had the rough outlines of a style of karate since 1977. I got kicked out of Oregon Karate Association. Uh, I got into this uh, little guerrilla warfare with the chief instructor an incredible waste of time and energy for both of us. I mean, I, I was really invested and I <laughs> lost, but I got kicked out when I got kicked in and his whole thing at the time. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it, it was, it was children's games. And I was one of the children. I mean, I'll be really honest about it, but you know, he was yipping and yapping about, well, the only reason Dan's winning is because of, you know, it was our style and the way I taught him. And I'm kind of like, well, screw this. And I went out and I went from being a top 20 player to a top 10 player after quitting his, his school. It's kind of like, <laughs> right. But so, you know, I do the tournament thing. I do the tournament career. And about uh, 1980, I just start burning out. And I don't want it as bad. You know, now I'm still one of the top 10. I'm not the number one guy. Uh you know, the, the, the two main guys who were definitely ahead of me at the time, uh, Ray McCallum, uh, Keith Vitale, boy, they wanted it like nobody's business. Uh, Steve Anderson, you know, nasty when he was coming up, man, he was so hungry. He, you know, he would do anything to win. And, but my wanting to win thing was starting to descend and I stayed in the game probably about two years longer than I uh, should have. I lost to people that I shouldn't have. Uh, you know, all that and 10 bucks will get me a good cup of coffee. No big deal. So in 1985, I happened to be doing private lessons with this kid. Uh, he's a, a Japanese style karate, Shitoryu, uh, um, killer kata kid. When he fought, he led with his face. And so you know, his dad, who was uh, a karate version of, of, of a soccer mom or a soccer dad, hired me to teach him how to fight. So I would go over, my ex-wife and I would go over, like every Wednesday, I would do an hour private lesson, then we'd have drinks afterwards. And one night he's going, uh, you know, Dan, have you ever thought of starting up a karate school out here? Now, at this point, point in time, I was, I was between schools, between clubs, and the only clubs that I had were basically for my training, which means on a good month, I averaged 10 people because we were a roughneck and thug crew 
And I was beating the dog crap out of them. And they were loving it. And they were tough. I mean, they were tough, rugged beasts, but, you know, they were putting up with me. Something you couldn't do in a regular school, right? So anyway, you know, he's asking me and, you know, we're over drinks and, I, and I'm being polite. He says, well, you know, gosh, I'd never, I'd never really thought about doing a school out here. But I'll tell you what, you know, if you happen to see a good location, yeah, please let me know. In my mind, I'm thinking, Gresham, Oregon? That's out in the sticks. That's nowhere. That's way out of here. It's like, no, in my mind. He calls me the very next day. Hey, Dan, I think I found a spot. I'm thinking, this guy is serious. Holy smokes. So we go, we go through several, you know, several locations, you know, scouting them out and so forth. And he is so into this. He's willing to grub stake me. It's like, really? This guy's willing to front me. And my, and my ex-wife, you know, she's kind of going, yeah, okay, good. So <laughs> when we open up the school in Gresham, I'm no longer competing. And it's the first school that I decided, okay, to open for the student. And, and one of the first big pies right dead in my face was nobody were, nobody were, they weren't competitors. Here I was the big competitor. I love competition. I live for tournaments. I lived and breathed. Let's go to tournaments. And they're all going, I don't want to go to a tournament. I said, really? It's like, what's wrong with you guys? Well, the second hardest lesson for me to learn was that nobody really gave two hoots to a holler about tournaments. Oh, okay. Well, if this school is for them, then what is important to the student, to the client. Now, this brings me around to what I alluded to earlier about today's clientele, today's student is not the student of yesteryear. Okay, well, the student of 1985 was not the student of 1966. Talk you know? through all that. Tell us about the, the differences everyone wants to know for well, sure. You know, the, the thing is, is the student, the student of 1966 and earlier went to a karate school or a karate dojo. The chief instructor was, uh, they were ranked somewhere below the president of the United States, but higher than the secretary of defense. And you didn't screw with them. You followed their direction. And if you didn't like it, you did more push-ups. But, 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 good, that's another 10 push-ups. What? That's 20. Yes, sir. Ooh, 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 ooh. And you followed that, right? And the thing is, is that you know, the people who stuck with it, and I say this with all affection because I was one of them, the people who stuck with it were nuts. They were absolute knuckleheads. They were nuts. They were karate nuts. And this is how we grew up. Sensei was supreme, or Sabanim was supreme, or Sifu wasn't supreme, it was, was supreme. But the thing was, is that karate was not very well known. It was, and Kung Fu was even, much less known. Kung Fu was like all glitter and gold and, 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 and secret stuff and all this kind of business. And, but you, you, you go on further, you go on further and you go on further. Now we're going to get into a pet peeve of mine and uh, people can uh, agree or disagree as they will. However, since the second world war, there have been a number of pop psychologies to come out as to how to raise your child. 
And roughly about every five years, I think, something new comes out. But what gets, the air that gets let out of the tires are accountability and discipline. Less and less and less until you're finally discussing with your five-year-old what is best for your five-year-old. Yeah, right. If kids these days got their own decision as to whether they would attend school or not, public school, public schools, in my opinion, would empty out by 50%. I would have left. I didn't want to go to school. A lot of kids don't like to go to school. There's kids that do like to go to school. Why do we go to school? Because we have to. Mom, I don't want to go to school today. Too bad, so sad. Get your clothes on, let's go. But, 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 yeah, that's the sound of a motorboat. Get your clothes on and let's go. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's what it is with public school, right? Okay, dojos used to be like that. And uh, now, oh, <laughs> I might as well go to Target store and get one of the employees shirts and put it on because I'm going to put a target on myself. Fucking do it. Fucking do it. Is we're raising a bunch of weenies. <laughs> and I hate to say this is that, and if we've, if we've got any parents out there, you guys who are watching uh, and you're in your twenties or you're in your early thirties, um, I, I, I'm not going, and I'm just going to go ahead and look at a name here, John Bagnell. I'm not, I'm not, John, I'm not saying this is you. I'm just saying this just because I see your name written here and I don't see any picture, but we have weenies raising weenies. <laughs> <laughs> now, now. It's second generation weenie now. It's, it's oh, it's about third or fourth. It's about third or fourth. But see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. As a parent, we're not, you know, we don't have manuals. There's no, this, you know, there's no auto mechanics manual on raising a child, okay? So what you'll get is you'll get certain uh, viewpoints and certain philosophies to help combat this confusion. Now, the conf you know, what combated the confusion of raising a kid uh, back with my grandfather, you know, when my, with my granddad? Hey, we just paddled the shit out of him. You know, good. Drop your drawers. I got this paddle. How old are you? 12. Good. You get 12 wax. That's what I grew up with. And then somebody else will come up with, well, maybe that's not so good. So what you get is you get parents uh, searching for answers. And more often than not, they will be being fed the wrong answer. And kids, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I remember when I was five years old and I was smart as a whip. I knew how to play my parents as a, like a fiddle. My mom, as long as I kept a straight face and I kept my eyes on her, I could tell her anything and she would believe me. And I got really good at that. And, uh, and kids, you know, they'll play that game with me in the school. Then they'll find out that I'm not mom, I'm not dad, and this is not home. And I respond to good manners and work. And they turn around really quick. Okay. so. Sean, getting back to your question, okay, what's the difference in the clientele? Uh, the kids run the parents for the most part. And 
what is the parent's response? Uh, it's, it's, it, it's really funny because the parents, more often than not, will give you lip service about how they want discipline, mm. they want respect, they want courtesy, they want uh, forward thinking, they want uh, commitment, they want goal setting. But what do they really want? They want the kid to shut up. They want the kid to just knock it off. Mom, I don't want to go to karate. It's boring. It's really, really boring. I mean, honestly, bored, 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 bored. Okay, sweetheart, you don't have to go. No more noise. Out comes the Game Boy. And the thing is, is that uh, uh, the, most of the, you know, the big, large number of the parents that I've got, and I, and I run a small club. I don't run a, a, a great big, you know, 125, 200, 250, 300 uh, student group. You know, I'm, I'm in the 60s. But my guys, they know that I back them up. And so they do the best they can. And, you know, it's like, do you want me to tell Professor Dan? <gasps> and so anyway, the, the clientele these days, you know, and, and <laughs> this is really bad, but if you want to talk about what made America great, that, that wonderful pioneer spirit, that stick to it, that, that giddy app and go, okay, that's not being fostered. And these days, so what you have to do is you have to be a bit slippery about how you get that in. And so when I talk about, you know, the clientele these days, there's certain things you can't do, you know, um, Back in 1985, <laughs> what my daughters and what my old-time students remember is that, oh, 50 push-ups? Oh, that was a low number for you, uh, for you Sifu. That's what I went by, by back then. You only make them do 10 push-ups now? You used to make me do 100. Yeah, well, you were a little shit. But you used to make me do 100. I, I, I totally got it. Well, 1985 was then, and you know, 2020 is now. I make somebody do 20, uh, uh, 100 push-ups now, parents are going to be screaming for a refund. So, so let me, that's let me, what I'm talking about. Yeah, let me, the, thank you for that. Let me jump into a great question that has to do with teaching from Luis David Munoz, who's, uh, who says, I can tell you're a natural born athlete, but surely from a teacher's perspective, you must have noticed that not everyone comes in with that in their system. Have you developed a way to teach that natural talent of yours to the not so talented by birth like myself, he says. I fought the man, he's being humble. Um, but have you found a way to teach people who don't have what you have uh, in the toolkit to do what you do? Yes, because the thing is, and the thing is, is that what, since I wasn't naturally loose and limber like Keith Vitale, one of the things that I did was I studied by the body mechanics of others. And let's say, let's take Bill Wallace, okay? Everybody looks at Bill Wallace and they go, oh, wow, look at that high kick. Look how high that is, his incredible stretching. But the thing that they don't look at is, take a look at his base leg. His base foot is pointed uh, directly away from the target. Now, Here's the next thing. Take a look at his upper body. His upper body is darn near parallel with the ground, which means that what he's doing is he's working with the skeletal structure as well as with the stretch. So what I started doing is I started uh, looking at 
the, uh, the mechanics of everything. And back in the ancient days, I really sucked as a teacher because I was a terrible, I was a terrible people person. Incredible mechanic. If, if, if you need to work on your sidekick or you need to work on your rear punch or whatever, uh, I could fix it, bang, bang, bang. If it took me five minutes to fix it, I was on an off day because of knowledge of body mechanics. But uh, being a people person and relating to this personality, that personality, that personality, that personality, oh, I stunk up the joint. You could smell me from miles away. I mean, I was really bad. And because of my uh, first wife and because of uh, uh, my last wife, my current wife, but I won't say current wife, my last wife, she's a keeper. I became more of a people person and I, and I could start relating to individuals more so from different personality points. And then, yeah, then you get, you know, uh, the people who aren't, let's say, uh, you know, athletically inclined or muscularly inclined. And you have to figure out a way to get that particular mechanic. And you know, good. If somebody's got good balance, you don't, uh, you don't use the wall. If they have terrible balance, you put them on the wall. And if worse comes to worse, you physically turn their hips. You physically pick their leg up or, 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 or. So, um, yeah, I can, I can get anybody to mechanically duplicate what I did. Right. Can I get them to uh, mentally get into it the way that I got into it? I think there's been one student out of 35 years. <laughs> so when you're working with personalities, et cetera, everybody's got their own go button and their go button was definitely not mine. Say so la a couple more tournament questions before I get into, uh, I've got some questions that we ask all of our guests. Um, these ones kind of go along with each other uh, from John Ryan, uh, which win, meant the most to you and why? And then from Mark Altamar, uh, do you still compete in any tournaments? If not, when and how did you decide to retire? So which one meant the most? And are you still competing? If not, what made you hang it up? There, there's, 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 two, there's, uh, there's two matches, actually three matches. I'm going to have to say three matches that meant the most. And uh, the first one was that broken hand one that I told you about where I fought uh, uh, one of the top lightweights in, in the country, Byung Yu. And I fought him uh, for first place in the lightweight division. And at that time, it was the longest overtime ever recorded, 19 minutes overtime. We, uh, I watched him warm up and he was, he was showing off to a bunch of friends. I was sitting about 20 feet away, you know, in the stands with my hands covered, just, just watching him. And, and I said to uh, the person that was with me at the time, I said, you know, he's not that fast. Mm. And, First thing right off the bat, whenever he fought people that uh, he didn't know, he liked to showboat. So he comes at me with a flying sidekick. And at that point in time, almost any target was legal. So, of course, I slid under him and sidekick. You know, and his legs are going like this. Two out of, th uh, two out of five judges. Okay. Another one counterpunch with, uh, 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 with my wrapped up hand, but you didn't have to contact. So, two out of five judges. At after that point, he, uh, he stopped fooling around. He's, and he got down to business, and he was very, very defensive. But he was the guy that I was going to throw that left-hand punch with that speared me. And, uh, but the, that was the first one that showed me that I could uh, uh, compete on a national stage. Now, the second one was about nine months later in Dallas, Texas. 
And uh, <laughs> this is another funny one. Uh, the, again, bare knuckle back in those days. And now Bill Wallace, uh, he had a phrase that a point in Texas is first degree murder in California. And Texas was the roughest game in town, but it was the cleanest game in town. It was an agreed upon rough game, you know, and, you know, people just beat the hell out of each other, shook hands and had beers afterward. I'm camaraderie like crazy. But when you were in there, you know, you were thrown in the meat grinder and you were expected to either be ground or jump out. So I'm fighting this kid, uh, <laughs> nicknaming kid. He's probably a year older than me. Uh, his name was Dennis Passaretti. He was from Rhode Island. His name was Kid Paz. He's one of George Pizzari's guys. And first match, and I'll tell you why this was important, was we bow, I get out there, and bang, I hit him in the cup, and he hits me in the face. And I'm walking back, and I'm replaying it in my mind. I'm going, okay, good. I got him clean on the groin, groin shot. So we either got the groin shot, or I get the contact call on the face punch. Point! Face punch. It's like, mentally, I'm doing a double text. Oh, Okay. I get him, get, bam, hit him with the groin, pow, hits me, hits me in the mouth. And I'm going, okay, there's blood. Okay, there's a point. Point, face punch. It's like, it, oh, there are three-point matches, by the way. Okay, so one of two things that I could have done. I could have gotten pissy about the contact, or I could have gotten down to business. And I decided to get down to business. Well, what he did was he went off the line two times in a row. So I figured he was coming off the line third time in a row. Wham, runs into a sidekick, one-point sidekick. Comes off the line, hit him with a spin back kick. Boom, spin kick, one point. Comes off the line, wham, hit him with a sidekick. Three points, I beat him three to two. Now back in those days, uh, they stopped the, the stopwatch. So I figured the match was about nine seconds long. But what I tell people is that, uh, you know, I made my black belt in Oregon but I became a man in Texas. That particular tournament, I ended up uh, beating Demetrius Havanis, first place in the lightweight division. I beat the Greek. I came that close to beating Roy Kerbin, uh, cost him $500 in a uh, uh, dental bill. Probably the only contact call in Texas. I hit him in the jaw with a hook kick. Uh, lost to him in overtime, and then he fought Bill for the championship. But uh, that one match with Kid Paz, I had a choice and I chose to win. I chose to go for it. And that got me up over the hump. So that was the second most important match. Now the third most important match, uh, 1977, uh, I had retired because I just gotten tired of the politics in the Northwest. And I started hearing, uh, well, yeah, Anderson was good, but dot, dot, dot. Mm. Anderson was good, but dot, dot, dot. So, these guys got such short memory. I ruled the Northwest. Come on. Well, you know, uh, Anderson had, had good kicks, but my hands were just as good as his. I, I got pissed. So I go up to this tournament. <laughs> Everything is off. Timing is off. Rhythm is off, man. You could smell me a mile away. I sucked. I, would, I mean, I, I, I was winning, but they were ugly wins. And I fought this guy for lightweight championship, uh, good buddy of mine, Jim McDonald, and but he was bony. You could bow in the ring with him and get a bruise. Wouldn't even touch. He was that bony, and he was off timing, and I was off timing, 
And it was the match where I had to reach down in my gut to fight and win. And, and I figured if I can win on a day like that, I can win anytime. So anyway, those were the three most important uh, matches that I had. And then you had a question that appended. Well, yeah. So you, uh, do you, the question was, do you still compete? I saw some stuff online of you recently. Um, so talk about your, your last tournament and then what made you go, yeah, that's good. I'm good. Or, or you got any more in you? Uh, I can't, I, I, I competed, uh, after I quit competing in about 82-ish, 83, I came out of retirement for very exact reasons. Uh, in 1990, I fought in the uh, Ted Turner's Goodwill Games. And for those of us old folks remember, Ted Turner had uh, uh, athletic games that were uh, staggered with the Olympics. And the AAU had latched onto the Goodwill Games and had a tournament when they had the Seattle Goodwill Games in 1990. And I was like 37 at the time. And uh, I didn't want to fight, didn't want to fight, didn't want to fight. Fred King, you know, he, he, he just wants to fight. My ex-wife, oh, she wanted to fight. Danny, Danny, you got to fight. And Fred's like, Dan, Dan, you got to fight. And it's like, no, I'm not fighting. I'll train with you guys. I'll train with you guys. But I'm retired. I quit. I'm retired. I don't do this anymore. Anyway, uh, a group that I'm, that, it was affiliated with then, affiliated now. The Hubbard Dianetics Foundation was a sponsor in the Goodwill Games. Well, the main face in Dianetics and in the Hubbard Dianetics Foundation is Charles Lakes, who was the 1988 uh, captain of the uh, uh, gymnastics team, failed to make that. So the most uh, visible face, the... Uh, uh, yeah, the athletic Tom Cruise of Dianetics wasn't going. I'm going, crap, 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 crap. I have one month, I have one month to prepare because I'm doing this for the team. So I go up there, and so all I worked on was positioning and timing. And I ended up winning two gold medals, open weight teams. So I fought for a reason there. Uh, when I was 40, you know, several years later, I fought for fits and giggles. Hey, what can I do at 40? Just for the sheer hell of it. What can I do? And uh, so I went up to a tournament and uh, fought uh, two different uh, uh, top 10 fighters at that time. Beat uh, Doug Bertrand, in, uh, who is a lightweight. Lost in overtime. Uh, oh, shucks. I can't remember his name. But I flinched. Okay, fine. He got me in overtime. But yeah, hey, 40, not bad. Then I hook up with my uh, current wife and uh, I'm 45. I thought, Meh. She's never seen me fight. What the hell? Let's go to a tournament. And so I prep for the tournament. I win the seniors division. I fight all the way up through uh, uh, fighting for the grand championship. And uh, I fight Eric Brewer, who's rated in the top 10 in the country at this time. Damn it, I flinched again over time. Boom, gets me with a back knuckle. Rats, runner up again. But okay, not bad for 45. And then uh, in 2002, was it 2002? 2004, it was one of those. Uh, student of mine at the time, Tom Layback, hey, Soup. He always called me Soup. Hey, Soup, 
there's, you know, the Funakoshi World Championships. It's, it's in Las Vegas, California. You know, you got to fight. You got to go down there and face Tom, 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 Tom. Come on, come on. I'm, I'm like, I'm retired. It's our soup. They've got a 50 and over division. I'm going, really? The tournament's on the 24th. I turned 50 on the 18th of November. Uh, <laughs> and I'm thinking, a legitimate <laughs> world champion, not one of these. Uh -huh. uh, North American tournaments that call themselves a world or intergalactic championship, but one that actually draws people from countries and stuff like that. So I thought, okay, okay. But I'm really going to play the game on this. So uh, I get ready for the tournament. I train for the tournament. I'm in good shape and so forth. <laughs> but I go down there with a brand new white uniform, a brand spanking new black belt. So I don't have any uh, any worn black belt. I look like a rube. I mean, mm -hmm. I look like a total raw rookie. <laughs> they asked me who my teacher is. Oh, he's a Filipino named Remy Presses. And so, you know, the, the, the whole Japanese mentality. Oh, you're sensei Dara. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm training with a Filipino, right? It's like, so I'm laying all this out, out there, you know, j just, to, just to smooth the ground for me. And then I go out there and just spank their asses <laughs> in the 50 to 54 year old division. So I was uh, 50 years old then. And then uh, I came out of retirement another time up in Vancouver, uh, not Vancouver, uh, on Victoria Island. Because I, the, the guy that I had that third match, match with, Jimmy Mack, J James McDonald, he would passed away from cancer uh, a number of years before. And they had a memorial tournament. So I go up there. And, uh, uh, you know, first time I'd been to the tournament, I, I don't know why I hadn't gone up before, but I go up there and I run into a guy uh, who had competed in Kata a lot, Andy Pruim. And Andy's going, yeah, I haven't, I haven't competed in Kata in a long time. God, I'm really stoked up. I'm supercharged. Blah, 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 like that. And I got the bug. I got the bug to fight. So I go up there. I fight. I win the tournament. And, uh, uh, and then... One that really meant a lot to me was that I was, um, it was what, two years ago. So it was probably two and a half years ago. One of my students, uh, you know, she, she, she's big into the humanities. So she's acting, she's singing, she's in plays, et cetera. Really good on her schoolwork. I mean, how can, how can you, you know, it's like you want them to train, but damn, they're paying, they're, they're paying attention to the important things in life, really getting herself set up, right? And so, you know, she said she'd love to work on her sparring, but, uh, and I said, okay, look, when do you have free time? Well, only Sundays. I'll tell you what, you've been with me 10 years. I've watched you grow up as a little girl, three o'clock on Sunday at the school, meet me. We'll work on sparring. So we work on sparring, but the thing is, is that whenever, whenever I've trained, I've had to train for a reason, you know, to push the body has never been a go button for me. That's Fred King. Oh, he loves training. He's 70 years old. He does this. He does that. He loves the challenge of pushing the body. No, I've got to, I have to, have, I have to have a goal. So the stretch that I had gone, uh, you know, like all the super Dan tricks gone, mm -hmm. the experience. Okay. They're good. So I thought, well, you know, here's an interesting thing. I've got this rubber hipped girl. I'm going to see if I can retool my, reprogram my sparring to what my body can do now. I thought, okay, we'll make a game out of this. So it turns out really well. I mean, trust me, I'm throwing front kicks, 
I'm throwing back knuckles. I'm throwing reverse punches. Round kick, no. I can't kick above the butt, you know? Side kick, no. Back kick, because structurally one can do a back kick, you know, reverse-wise on a front kick. Okay, yeah, the hips move this way. I can back kick. Uh, so I thought, okay, yeah, this is kind of interesting. So, but, you know, my student is my student. She's not going to push the old man, you know? But she did kick me in the face once. She was really pleased about that. Uh, I congratulated her and everything. She thought I was going to kill her. No, 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 no. So that was really good. So I get a buddy of mine, Bill Shaw. And, uh, you know, Bill's a senior, but he's got rubber hips. And I told him, so look, when we play, remember, I was a child of the 60s. You know, this leaning stuff, this slapping back fist. If, if you duck and dodge and hit me with a punch that's one of those lean over punch, I'm going to disregard it and I'm going to beat your ass because I do not call that a point. That's not a point. <laughs> Something that's going to hurt me, I will respect. You hit me with one of these dork shots, forget it. So he and I get training weekly and it's, and it's really good and I'm having a good time and I'm, 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 I'm retooling the, the, uh, uh, the sparring. Then I thought, well, you know, let's put it to the test. Let's put it to somewhere who isn't going to hold back because they like me. Let's go to a tournament. Well, it's in January. I'm going to go down to Salem, Oregon, and I'm going to fight down there. But the ice age hits, and we're like iced in for two weeks, so Salem's out. And so uh, Junkie Yoshida, he's got a Japan Karate Federation tournament, uh, uh, the um, WKF style, which is, okay, yeah, I'm doing front kicks, straight punches, et cetera. And I thought, you know, I'm going to be that shy of 65. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but I get tired of old karate people looking like old karate people. <laughs> where each stripe on the belt represents an additional 20 pounds, et cetera. I don't like it. You know, what, what the hell happened to the story of the old masters? You know, what happened to the story of the old masters? You know, uh, Ueshiba of uh, Aikido. You know, he's in his 80s when he dies. Funakoshi, you know, he's not this bloated old fart. You know, yeah, he's older and he can't move the way that he used to, but the guy could move. Why can't we do this in America? So I thought, you know, I'm going to fight at this tournament. But I called up the promoter, or, or actually uh, uh, the, the guy who was running the tournament. Said, "Jay, I got a, I, I have a, uh, I've, I've got a request of you." He says, "Yeah, what is it?" He says, "Well, this is your ears only." I says, "Okay, yeah, I've been training, etc. I want to fight at your tournament, but I want to ask you one question." He goes, "What?" Will I be restricted to my age division? He goes, Dan, what do you want to do? He says, I want to fight the children. I want to fight 18 to 35. He says, are you kidding me? I want to fight the children. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. Let me get a few drinks into Junkie, and I'll ask him. I'll call you back in a couple of days. He calls me back in a couple of days. I'm fighting the seniors, and I'm fighting the adults division. The oldest person in the 18 to 34 division was 40 years younger than me. My kind of test. So I fight, uh, I fight seniors. It goes exactly the way that I think it's going to go. I fight the adults. Uh, I didn't win first place. You know, I, uh, 
I think tied for third or something like that. But I made a hell of a good showing and they knew Super Dan was there. And so that was the last tournament that was to prove not only to myself that I can still go out and play the game. Whether I won or lost, I could make a reputable showing. And then to prove to everybody else out there that it doesn't matter if your hips. Oh, here's the interesting thing. I had arthritis in my right hip. I didn't know that. I just thought it was tight and it hurt because I used to kick a lot. Now, I've got an artificial hip now. Hasn't helped my kicking any, but, you know, my hip doesn't hurt anymore. But the thing, the thing is, is that because you're old doesn't mean you can't move. Yeah, the bruises are going to take longer to go away. So perhaps you're going to have to alter your training so you're not pulling muscles and getting slam, bang, hammered, and so forth. But it doesn't mean that you can't do it, you know? And so for the time being, I've proved everything that I need to prove to myself, to the karate populace, to my students, to my fans, and my detractors. You know, one of the, one of the things that I love to do is like, you know, when somebody, uh, uh, you know, likes to dog me, you know, and people will, you know, people will dog me and so forth. And I go, look, I'll tell you what, 54 years in the martial arts, 10th Don in karate, 9th Don in uh, Arnis, regional world national champion produced uh, between books and videos, over 65 books and videos. I'll tell you what, when you match that, you can talk to me and you can dog me. But until then, sorry, Charlie, you know. Well, we love to hear it. I, re I rest on the accomplishments I, I, as opposed to the ego. And so that was, you know, my coming back, coming back, coming back, coming back. And you want to you hear the screwiest thing? I've competed in every decade since the 60s. I've competed at least once. That's, <laughs> that's a yeah, lot better than the, the, the one uh, in my hand, you know? That's Samara Clapton <laughs> shit right there. You ready yeah. for the 10 questions? You ready for the, uh, the, the questions everybody gets? Fire them up. My, requ my request is you don't think too much about it. You just go with your first response, and then we'll move on to the next one. Okay. What is the most effective move in your martial arts arsenal? It has always been the back fist for me. Back fist or the low round kick to the groin. Who is the most influential martial artist in your life? Oh, 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 gosh. That one is a real hard one because there's too many. I think... I would have to say Howard Jackson. Howard Jackson was as tough as they come. He was as fast as they come. And dadgum, he was friendly. He was one of the nicest guys I ever met. Who's the most influential martial artist of all time and why? Uh, okay. I'm going to do an ask backwards call on this. It wasn't Bruce Lee. I'm sorry. It wasn't Bruce Lee. And I'm going to get shot for that by all of Bruce Lee's detractors, et cetera. Uh, I don't know. I think, I think probably the most influential martial artist of all time is somebody who we don't know, who decided to take chaos, which is what combat is, and figure out how to put order into it. The first person who did that, and that was the first person who made whatever kind of martial arts style, whether it was pugilistic, whether it was grappling, whether it was sword play, because from that point, boom, it blossomed out. So Whoever the unknown guy that figured out how to handle the chaos of fighting, that would be the most influence of all time. What excites you most about your next five years of training? I don't train. I'm lazy. Uh, it's true. I don't. I don't work. I, I, 
uh, I do mostly with modern artists. Now, in the next five years, I want to see how much payback I can do. I want to see how much I can get out to other people because martial arts should not be a mystery, you know. And when it comes to arnis and when and when it comes to karate, uh, there isn't anything I'm confused about anymore. I can explain it in plain English. So I will substitute, let's say, teaching as opposed to training. Um, I'm really happy with where I'm at right now. I don't let myself slop out, but if if you look on everybody's registration and waiver form, the one question that you won't find on the waiver form is, <coughs> did I come here to be confused? <laughs> you know, yeah. There's too many loose ends in martial arts. So as many loose ends as I can uh, wrap up. Anyway, sorry, too long of an answer. It's, it's great. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you land there? You finally turned out for such a butthead, didn't you? <laughs> Who's your favorite, favorite film and TV martial artist? Jackie Chan, because he has a sense of humor. And which, uh, which fighting celebrity would you want to fight the most and why? I would have liked to have played Bruce Lee. And why? He was quick. I, uh, and and, and let, me, uh, uh, let me qualify that. In my prime. In my prime, I would have liked to play Bruce Lee because uh, the thing about Lee, he was one-handed. His whole thing on his 80% forward, uh, his, his power side forward, that's what you use in the most 80%. 80%. And I was a great person for shutting that down. So I would have liked to play him. What's your greatest achievement and your greatest regret? I don't have regrets. Everything I've done has led me to right here, right now, and I'm happy with where I am right here, right now. My greatest achievement, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Um, I think, you remember when you were asking the biggest, the hardest lesson, the, the fellow who was asking the hardest lesson to learn? That was it. It was finally becoming plain old okay with myself, you know? And it's, it's one of those, it's, it's a life thing. It's one of those things that uh, should come with martial arts as with it should come with many endeavors. And a lot of people, it doesn't happen. And I'm sorry about that. But, um, you know, when I go home, I don't worry about things. I don't, uh, this is about this, this, that, and the next thing, except for that wonderful feedback, whoever's firing that up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, karate-wise, I think it was my first book. And the reason why there is that uh, it, I made a valid point in terms of karate free fighting, it is something that can be learned. It doesn't have to be uh, all instinct. It's something that can be mechanically learned. And then it also put me in a position to where uh, I could move forward from my career, you know? Yep. Yeah. You know, in interestingly, uh, that's the end of our questions or, or mine anyways, but the, uh, the, the, the person who gave me the same answer uh, was James Kahn. The actor, 
And I asked him, what's the key to a long and successful career? And he said, you got to be okay when you don't have the number one movie of the week or else you're going to hurt yourself yeah. uh, because you can't be basing your sense of self on comparison to the week you were number one. You'll never yeah, be okay. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so we're going to wind this up, Sensei. Um, I'm going to pass it around the horn. I'll start with Sensei Suino. You guys can uh, say goodnight to each other. Or they, they can ask any more questions, but uh, you've sort of done the bulk of our, our time here. So <laughs> we, Sensei Suino, where well, are you I've done at? the bulk of the time. I, we haven't even talked about Filipino martial arts, but anyway, go ahead. Well, so that's something that you could definitely tag out on, and I'm sorry we didn't get into that. Maybe when we have you back, yeah. wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, Anytime, let me know. Well, this is just a joy for us. And, and much like a podcast, we're growing this in a way that people can tune in. And we're definitely, um, there's more than one person on this call we'd like to have another session with. So um, sure. that might be the next one. But Sensei Suino, anything you want to chip in or add? Or Well, Dan, thank you so much. I just love hearing the echoes of uh, things that I've experienced and lessons I've learned along the way. Um, we definitely have to chat more, uh, <laughs> okay. whether it's uh, in, this, in this setting or... Um, uh, or, or in person. Where are you based? Where are you based? I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan, but I get out oh, okay. you know, Portland way now and then. And next time okay. I do, I'm going to... Yeah, see, I, I hit uh, uh, Detroit now and again. Come so on. I don't know how close that is, but yeah. Come on down. We'll okay. Make it work. Sounds good. Thank you very much, sir. Yep. Sensei Dofan? Yeah, I just want to say thanks uh, <laughs> to Anderson for maintaining the relationship with me. Uh, and uh, yeah, just thanks. Uh, I guess the other thing I want to say is to everybody on the call, if uh, you belong to a dojo, keep supporting that dojo, get yourself through this situation. Uh, you know, show the leadership in your training that your teachers have trained you. So um, be safe, uh, think for yourself, support the other people around in your community. Um, if you know somebody needs some help, please reach out. Uh, your group will be able to help those people. Uh, all the dojos that we're thinking of right now. So since Anderson's Dojo, Heritage Martial Arts, Japanese Martial Arts Center, Richmond Hill Budokai, Driftwood. I mean, I'm just spouting them off the top of my head, the ones that I can think of. Um, please keep these places going because if they shut down, you're not gonna, they're not gonna rebuild themselves really quickly and um, things will be lost. Um, the last kind of thing I wanna say is, uh, I showed uh, Sensei Anderson's book, I showed Sensei Suino's book, and uh, as a teaser, um, this book's gonna be coming out really soon, right? Which uh, I'm holding it in my hands, but uh, this is Hanshi Legacy's book, and I'm super excited to, uh, to be helping with that, and uh, that's gonna be out really soon. And Great. Sensei Anderson, thanks so much, I'm so uh, grateful. Hey, yeah, let me, let me, let me uh, mention one last thing, and is, the very first thing you said, first of all, you're welcome. And it was the same type of thing that was displayed to me when I was an up and comer. You know, so when I, when I would speak with Bill Wallace or speak with Jeff Smith or Chuck Norris or Howard Jackson or Al Dacascos and those guys, they all gave. And that was the big thing that really made, if anything made the Super Dan package, that's what made it. And so... You know, with your asking questions or you're being interested, boom, pass it down because that's exactly what made me, me. And so uh, you're very welcome. And, uh, you know, that's what I do. So there you I go. Hope we do I hope we yes. do this again.
Thank you. Thank, yeah. thank you, Super Tim. This has been a real pleasure and an honor, and uh, I, I look forward to the next one as well with you. You bet. You just let me know. You line the other guys up, knock them down, and then call me up. Okay. And I'll be right there. Very cool. Okay. Okay, thanks for watching, everybody. This has been episode three of Punch, Kick, Choke, Chat. And uh, I'm as excited as everybody to get back to the punch, kick, and choking aspect of our martial arts. <laughs> uh, but till we can, uh, at least with each other, we're going we're gonna to have these types of conversations. And we look forward to sending you out the schedule for the next, um, the next three guests we're going to have. We're, we're already starting to line those people up. We're really excited about it. And uh, it means a lot that you've joined us these weeks. So thank you very much. Mwah. Thank you. Stay safe, everyone. Yep.